You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. Amen. I have a lot, uh, a lot to look at this morning. It's a little bit technical. I think it's important for our church. We're at an interesting crossroads. So if you have your Bible, you would like to read along with me. It's just two verses. Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2 is the focus of our for study this morning, what we're going to be looking at. That's on page 1009 if you're using one of those, um, those church pew Bibles there. Uh, let's, let's go ahead and read that. Romans 16, verses 1 and 2. Uh, if you remember, Paul has been writing this letter to the church. It's coming to a close now, and he says this. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church in Centuria. So you should welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever matter she may require your help. For indeed, she has been a benefactor of many and also to me. Let's pray. Lord, as we look to this text, as we try to understand not just the beauty of churches helping churches and and servants in the church, but Lord, really what you would have for your bride. Help me to, to teach this well. Help us to understand it well. Help us to really anchor into the word. And Lord, the biggest, the biggest challenge here, I think, for us, for my heart and my mind, and maybe for the hearers too, is, is presuppositions or assumptions of what should be, or, or maybe, Lord, even just tradition. And so help us to cut through all that and really truly anchor into what your word says. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you are, if you're here, and I... And welcome, by the way, if you're, if you're here. If you're in here and you're not a Christian, or you're in here and you haven't been a, a believer for very long, uh, the scripture we read probably just seems like the most harmless thing you've ever heard. Like, oh, the, the, great, no problem. Or maybe in the, Ukrainian, uh, in the Ukrainian churches, I don't know. Maybe this isn't really a thing, but uh, you know, when the church it received a letter in Rome, they're like, oh, that's kind of the most harmless thing I've ever heard. But today... There's a lot packed in here, specifically in, in one word. Our understanding has really kind of compounded what we're looking at here, and it's gotten very complicated, but it's the role of assistant or the role of servant or, or what, what is Phoebe doing? What's happening here? And I think, I believe, it's gotten very unnecessarily complicated over the years. So it's my hope that by examining Phoebe's beautiful contribution to the church, we might be a little more equipped to anchor ourselves a little bit better into what God intended in the church when that letter went to Rome, when they received it. Okay, so first what we're going to look at is what's on the surface right here in the text. We'll just we'll get a, a good surface view, and then we're going to peel back some of the layers, some of where that complication has come in to see if we can make sense of it and just get a little better handle on this, this servant role and, and what's here. And I hope that we're going to see the lessons that we can glean from this text, and then we can apply them in our church and to our lives today. So let's, let's just sort of unpack these two really simple verses. Okay, it starts simple enough. It starts real simple. Based on the commendation, there's this commendation, and then the next section we're going to see next week, uh, Lord willing, is all the, the say hi to so-and-so, greet this person, greet that. This person says hi, you say hi. It's like, hey, but there's this front part. It's accommodation, and most of the scholars would say that seems like the reason for the accommodation is that Phoebe was likely, most likely, the person who delivered Paul's letter to the church in Rome. She's the one who, who had that responsibility. Okay, and, and Paul said, here's what I want from you, so we can see this. I want you to welcome Phoebe in the Lord. 
That was one of his instructions. So because of that, let's see some things we can learn here. She's a sister in Christ, right? Uh, a saint. Paul calls her a sister, and they should treat her as such. Because it's based on Paul's accommodation. You should care for these people who are serving the church. And she's worthy of your welcoming her in, into the group. Welcome her in. She's worthy of this. And he also said you should help her. And whatever this task that she's on, you need to help her in what she needs. You guys just help her out. Okay, so that should lead us to the question, who is Phoebe? Some of you grew up in my generation and you're thinking of a weird blonde girl in a coffee shop playing a guitar. That's not her, right? Not singing about cats and who knows what else. It's not that Phoebe. It's likely that Phoebe was named after the biblical Phoebe. And that's a good name for a woman because this woman is amazing. Let's, let's ask the question, who is Phoebe? Right? So we know that she was named after a Greek goddess. And I don't think that's particularly important except that that definitely suggests that she was not Jewish. I don't think any good Jewish person would be naming their kids after Greek goddess back then. So she was probably a Gentile who converted to Christianity, not a Jewish person who converted to Christianity. Also, Paul identified her as a sister, so she's not just some paid you know, bike messenger who rode from, from Corinth all the way to Rome or something. She's a, a believer. She's a sister. right? Verse 1 says that she came to them from the town of, of Centuria, which is about five miles, just slightly south. It's a coastal town next to Corinth. So it's kind of a, I'd say suburb, but back then five miles is like a half a day's journey. So I wouldn't call that a suburb, but it's a close city. She was likely part of the church in Corinth. Or if she wasn't a part of the church in Corinth, she was probably in a house church that was probably planted by Corinth. She has a tie to these people, and she knows Paul there from the church in Corinth. Paul in, included that um, Phoebe has helped many people, including Paul. She's been a benefactor, and a benefactor is someone who gives money or some kind of service to help others. Usually it's, it's money. Um, and he says she was a benefactor of many, suggesting that maybe, maybe she had some kind of wealth. She had money. To, to, it was a wealth-giving type of thing, right? She might have had some influence. Now, we don't know that for sure. It doesn't say that solidly, but whatever she had, she, was, she gave. She helped people. So she was probably very generous. We can see that. She must have been generous because it's enough that it makes the letter. She's a benefactor of many. And because she's so generous and because she's helped so many, you should help her. Okay, that's kind of his point. I'm thinking maybe. Now, all this right now is just speculation. Maybe she was like Lydia, the woman who had a business who dyed purple linen and, and probably was traveling around. And so maybe she was she was like someone like that who owned a business, but who knows? We don't know for sure. The text doesn't say. We're just speculating to try to get a handle on who, who this woman may have been. It also doesn't have any mention of any of her fellow travelers. Now, you'll notice in the next section, man, Paul mentions everybody, everybody's friends. Hey, what about this person and that person? Say hi to this person. Give a shout out to that person. And so-and-so back here says hi. And we're all good friends. Now, no mention of who her traveling companions were. It doesn't even mention a husband. It doesn't mention she. It, it doesn't mention anybody else. And this would have been a very dangerous trip to make alone. So she probably didn't make the trip alone, which leads us maybe to believe. I, I think so. Maybe she was the traveling pack leader in this group. So they don't mention the others with her. She was. She was kind of the one with the responsibility. I know this much for sure. She must have been trustworthy. 
I mean, she must have been someone you could count on, someone you could trust, because Paul entrusted her with the serious responsibility to deliver this important letter to the church in Rome. So she was probably trustworthy, and she was probably tough. She was probably tough, because depending on the route, and I've looked at a few different routes she could have taken, uh, the trip goes anywhere from 750 miles with a part of a hop across some water on sort of a ferry to 1,600 miles. Okay, no cars, right? This, this woman must have been tough because there's no short travel to go from Corinth to Rome. And it was dangerous. And so Paul really must have had a lot of trust in her. Um, she's a remarkable woman. Donald Gray Barnhouse says this of the situation. And I find it just, it's beautiful if you think about it. And, and we just pass over these kind of verses. We don't even hit pause and think about it. He says this, Never... Was there a greater burden carried by such tender hands? The theological history of the church through the centuries was in the manuscript which she brought with her. The Reformation was in the baggage. The blessing of multitudes in our day was carried in those parchments. If not for this letter, Luther probably wouldn't have had his moments. All these people that have been radically transformed by the book of Romans. We wouldn't, I mean, Paul entrusted this this system of theology into the hands of Phoebe. Finally, it says that Phoebe was a servant, depending on your translation. It says she was a servant. Okay, that word is, uh, can mean servant. It can mean messenger in a sense. It can mean assistant. It can mean helper. Some translations will go with minister, and that'd be, that'd be reasonable. And then we have this sort of Greekized English word most of us are familiar with in the English, but there's a Greek word, and this is where it comes from. Underneath it, it can mean deacon. So your translation might say deacon. Okay, and now that I've said this, we've started to scratch the surface of why this gets so complicated in the church, haven't we? Like, I don't, I don't know if this is complicated in, in the Ukrainian brothers and sisters churches where they came from, but it has become a complicated matter in our churches. If we were another church, I'm not sure we'd be able to travel down the road we're about to go down. And the conversations we're about to have over the next couple of months about what is happening here at this church, I don't think we'd be able to do it. I think it would be risky. This topic is so hot in some places. It's so steeped in tradition. It's so sensitive to some brothers and sisters that it divides churches. It's a biggie. But after a year of conversation that I've been having and a, a, a big season of study with the elders and the church council, I'm convinced we're not that church. I don't think we're that church. I think we are able to handle this conversation. I think we will anchor ourselves to God's word well. And I don't think this is the kind of thing that's going to be much of a thing here. And I am really thankful for that. I hope you are too. That speaks volumes about who we are right now in this season. Praise the Lord, especially in the volatile world we live in. You guys are... You guys are really in love with Jesus, and I'm convinced that we can walk down this journey together with grace and study well and anchor ourselves to Jesus Christ. So let's start this journey a little bit today, shall we? Let's, let's see what's here in the text, okay? We're going to walk down the role of this idea of the servant in the church. And so you might remember in the book of Exodus, like what? We're ex- what are we going to Exodus for? You might remember that just after God rescued the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery by way of the Passover, 
right, with the lamb that was slaughtered and the blood and the whole bit, Moses, their leader, takes this whole giant group of probably more than a million people out into the wilderness, and he's just totally overwhelmed with the workload of God's people. It's Moses and all of them. That would be a big burden. In Exodus 18, 13, it says, Moses sat down to judge the people, kind of serve and help, and they stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Jethro, who was Moses' father-in-law, shows up, he comes to visit, and he sees that Moses is just burdened like this. He calls Moses out. Verses 17 and 18, he said, What you are doing is not good. When you see not good in the Bible, there's a theme that runs through it. Where's the first place not good showed up? God created the earth. It was good. God created mankind. It was very good. Where's the first place it was not good? Man should not be alone. What did God do? Created a helpmate. Now we have Jethro saying, This is not good. He says, uh, you will certainly wear out both yourself and these people who are with you because the task is too heavy for you. You can't do it alone. Therefore, they devised this plan to select certain helpers. They had certain criteria. We're going to select these people under these certain conditions, and these conditions include faith and character, people who would be good for the group, good for the church, good for Moses. They were God's people to serve God's people. Then they were given responsibility for the smaller cases, Okay, anything they couldn't handle be brought up to Moses. So in essence, they're Moses' assistants. They're Moses' helpers to help take up some of that burden. Why? Because God cares for all of his people. And he cares for Moses. He doesn't want Moses to burn out. Man, there are churches today that just burn through people. Burn them out. On to the next one. Get another one. Hire another one. Burn them out. That's not how God treats his leaders. He cares for them. And he cares for the people. So it was important because we're caring for God's people, if these people were, quote, able, God-fearing, trustworthy, and they hate dishonest prophet, right? So they're not going to be bribed. That's according to Exodus 18.21. Otherwise, they end up with these poor quality under-shepherds, these helpers who do not care about God's people like they should, and they don't serve God's people like they should. You get the wrong people, it's going to hurt the people, right? You get the wrong servants, it's going to hurt the church. Now, let's fast forward from the Exodus to a time shortly after the perfect Passover. Looks, it echoes these same sorts of things. Jesus has gone to the cross. He's the Passover lamb. He died for our sins. And this fledgling New Testament church, after Jesus has got them going and ascended, it is quickly overwhelmed by the growth of the shepherding task. If you read in the book of Acts, they're like adding 3,000 people to their church in one day. Could you imagine what that must have been? That would be so, so exhausting. Then they did it again. Then they were adding people daily. They were overwhelmed with the shepherding, caring task. And and there was only the 12 apostles who had this task. And they were preaching every day. And they're praying. And they're tending to the church that had quickly grown to tens of thousands of people. That would be tough. Right? They also had this ministry where they were distributing food to the widows. Probably the widow Christians, but it says Jews. It could have been just all the widows in the city. That might have been a ministry they were doing. To all those people. Whatever the case, there was some problems in the daily distribution to the widows. There was some, some unfairness, some, a little bit of racism. And so the church brought the problem to the 12 apostles, the leaders. We don't have any other leaders at this point in the church. We just have these 12 apostles. And up to this point, they were doing all the work. They were shepherding the church in Jerusalem, and it was huge. And that was the team. And now, here comes another problem they got to deal with. They need to attend to this. What are they going to do? This has the real potential of distracting their work and derailing them from what they do. But Acts 6.2 tells us they didn't believe it would be right or best for them to 
be distracted with that and actually give up preaching to the church. They believed that feeding the church the word of God was going to be the the thing they needed to stick to. So what are they going to do? So what they did is they asked the church to select seven men based on some specific criteria. That criteria would then say, hey, these people are, are of a certain caliber, a certain character. They're faithful. They're honest. They're, right? And then those people are going to be tasked with, by the church, assisting in fixing the problem. They're going to go and take care of the problem for the church so that those 12 apostles can continue preaching the word of God daily and continuing to do their job. Otherwise, those apostles would have been so burdened, it wouldn't have been good for the people, and it wouldn't have been good for the apostles, and therefore it wouldn't have been good for the church. What a great, what a great plan, right? Much like back in Moses' day, those helpers were helping, right? Otherwise, you got these apostles, who, by the way, the apostles are pulling double duty, okay? They're, they're filling in, in the role of what we would call elder pastor, but they're also the apostle, the apostolic witnesses, recording the very word of God, taking that message so that it will be recorded for us even today. Those guys were, were really, they had a pretty big truckload of work that they were doing for the kingdom. So praise the Lord for these helpers that could come and do this. And then, and then what does it say happened? Right, because of this, Acts 6, 7, it says, So the word of God spread, and the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. So by getting this right, it actually helped the church to grow and the gospel to spread. We need to get this right, they're saying. Right now, the word, the Greek word, from where we might translate deacon or servant, is not used in Acts chapter 6. Other words for servant are used there. But it's clear that these servants were identified and affirmed to help in the work. Right? The church saw it, and they affirmed it, and they said it was good. There it is again. It is good. So we don't see the word specifically used, but I think what we do see in Acts 6 is that the church, they're making their first effort to sort of enlist this non-apostolic, non-elder servant person to help in the church. They're trying to work it out. So we don't have these precise guidelines. It's not crisp and clear. It's not, here's the owner's manual, like changing the tire on your car with pictures and diagrams. They were still working it out themselves. They didn't know what it was going to look like. They're trying to figure it out. What a task. You know, that was, that was probably 33, maybe 34 AD. So now let's fast forward a bit. Let's take up, we've gone from Exodus, right, to Acts chapter 6. Let's fast forward now, maybe it's, maybe it's 20 or 23, maybe 24 years later, right? It's probably somewhere around 57 AD. Paul is writing from an established church in Corinth to an established church in Rome. Okay, these are two established churches. They've seen how church works. They've talked to each other. They've had conversations, right? They understand the role of elder. They probably understand the role of the servant, helper, deacon, person, right? They understand the functions and the relationships at this point. So they knew what Paul was saying in the text that we wrote in his letter when he said, Phoebe is a servant of the church in Centria. They didn't go, well, what could that be? What a mystery. Let's do a Bible study. They totally knew. Like, oh, of course, piece of cake. Right? Paul doesn't have to break it down with a theological tangent. right? And if the Bible was a fake hack, which some people claim, or if Paul didn't write this, then it'd be full of these poorly written sort of breakaways for the audience beyond the fourth wall, like when you're watching a bad TV show. I almost put a network there of some of these, but I decided against it because you'd all be mad at me, mostly just my wife. Um, when you're watching a poorly written, quickly made TV show or movie, 
and they break away with the worst dialogue you've ever heard. Hey, Dad, we're in a tough spot. It's much tougher than that time back in the spring of 1987 when a fire started in the home you built for Sarah, that Victorian beloved home, and Sarah, who's my mother and who was your second wife, who you married after the death of your beloved's first wife. Dad, it's a tough spot like that. Said nobody ever. They know each other. They're not going to say all that stuff. That's just stupid, right? That's just, that doesn't make any sense. So Paul's not going to break away with something that, they, that to explain something to an audience that's not them. They knew what he was talking about. And that's why it isn't so clearly unpacked for us. So then it doesn't really answer the questions that we want. It's not answering, it's not answering our questions, but that wasn't the purpose of his statement there in those two verses. I don't even think he was thinking about future generations of churches reading this letter when he said that about Phoebe. So we get a glimpse into something that they already understood. We, we, they already understood it. We want to know all the specifics, but that's not what we get right here. Okay, the only thing we know is that that word is now getting used because it's been getting worked out a little bit, right? So now let's fast forward again. Let's go forward five more years in time, this church. This time, Paul is writing to an established church that's doing well that he helped plant years before in Philippi, where Lydia came from. And he addresses the letter this way. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers, which is where we get our elder pastor, and deacons, which is the servant helpers. To all the saints, and the pastors, and all the helpers. To all you guys and ladies. All the stuff you're doing there. Right? That's how he addresses the letter in the first verse. Now, that tells us that they, had, they understood what he was talking about. Now let's jump forward again. Now it's about 64, 65 AD. We're just moving forward in how this is developing. Paul is now in prison. Man, this guy's had a life. Man, this guy's now in prison. He's writing from prison to two pastors that he helped train up. He's got instructions for them. Okay, And they're in different places with different circumstances. The first letter he wrote went to Timothy. And they seem so similar in some ways that it seems like he wrote them at the same time. Hey, I'm in prison. This might be the last letter I write to you. Like here, psh, psh. He writes a letter to Timothy. Now, Paul and Timothy had worked together a lot, but Paul left Timothy in Ephesus, okay, where there was an established church, and Timothy's one of the pastors in the established church in Ephesus, maybe the lead pastor. Paul's giving him some instruction. The instruction is to help them fight false doctrine. That's the purpose. It's not just, hey, you're, you don't know what you're doing. It was, you got false doctrine, that's a real issue. Here's how you combat false doctrine. So then part of those instructions start out, explaining what the worship gathering should kind of look like and explain when the church comes together what should happen. Hey, these guys should offer prayers. It should look like this. This is kind of how you should dress, all that stuff. Then Paul gives a specific set of criteria for selecting good shepherds and good shepherd helpers in the church. He says, look, you want to fight false doctrine? Don't put up people of poor character. Don't put up charlatans. Don't put up axe murderers. Don't put like you need to put up people that meet this specific set of criteria. And that specific set of criteria is listed in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3. And the second part of that, so first it's elders, you know, good, faithful, able to teach, uh, men of good character, they've demonstrated they can lead in their homes, all this kind of stuff. Like these are the people you want to be your pastors. That's how you protect the doctrine, right? Why? Because God cares for his church. Because God doesn't want a bunch of false doctrine running around, a bunch of wolves coming in, because that's his bride we're talking about. God cares. You've got to be able to rightly handle the word because God cares. The helpers then, he says, you need to have some, some standards for the helpers or the deacons, okay? And we, we call that sort of an office, a set of standards. The deacons should be good Christians. That seems like a no-brainer, but 
Travel across the country in our country and you'll find that maybe not everybody understands that. Right? These servants, anybody who's serving the bride, they should meet this criteria and be faithful. Okay? They shouldn't be gossips. They shouldn't be drunks. They shouldn't be hypocrites. They're not greedy for money. Right? This all makes sense, right? We wouldn't want the people serving here in this church to be like that, would we? I wouldn't. I wouldn't. You know, people say like, well, well what about the person who helps count the money? No, they should be good Christians. <laughs> what about the people who work in children's ministry? Oh, you're right, children's ministry. They can be hypocrites, gossips, drunks, we don't care. No! God cares about his bride, and the children in the church are part of God's bride. Like we, God cares for his people. This makes sense. Here's the instructions at this church. for the, When you're looking for more pastors, make sure they look like this. When you're looking for servant helpers in the church, deacons, make sure they look like this set. That makes really good sense. Okay, now, here's where it gets interesting. The second letter. Paul wrote two letters, one to Timothy in Ephesus, and then he wrote the other one to Titus. Titus was this church-planting pastor uh, who Paul left on Crete with a particular mission to appoint elders in every town. That's Titus 1.5, or to appoint the pastors. So these are like a bunch of little tiny groups that don't even have pastors. He's basically saying you need to get some of these pastors found and trained up for these churches. So then like the other letter, as he's saying this, he goes on to say, here's a specific set of criteria for what those elders should look like, those pastors. They need to look like this. And the list is almost identical because that's what pastors need to look like. But then he doesn't go on to give any instructions or qualifications for the servant helpers. It's missing. That's weird. Do I, I guess in that, I guess in those, I guess in Crete, nobody cares about who serves the church, just whatever. No, that's not the issue. They didn't even have pastors yet. Those are the least of their concerns that they figure out what it's going to look like for all the rest of the people. Get the pastors situated. And then once you get there, then go to the next place. Paul was, was making sure he didn't get the cart before the horse. But you see the difference between these two situations? It's really telling, isn't it? Now, let's fast forward again. You guys tracking with me on this journey? So now we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna fast forward out of the Bible, past the, the last book written in the Bible. So now we're not talking about biblical authority. We're just looking at history, and that's, that could be dangerous ground, so we want to be cautious. So the Apostle John, the guy who wrote the book of Revelation, the Gospel of John, three letters, the guy Jesus loved, right? John, the guy we love too, the beloved disciple. He's awesome. He trained up a guy with a great name. Who did he train up? Come on, church. Polycarp. Polycarp. Yay, my favorite. I love this guy. I love this guy. I love his writing. I love his story. Polycarp. This is a direct disciple of John, the apostle. Now, Polycarp wrote a letter. I'm not going to get into all the details of that letter, except for the fact that it's very clear in that letter that by the time Polycarp was writing his letter, these responsibilities and these roles were well established. This is what a pastor should look like. This is what a deacon or assistant should look like. By this point, they, okay, in Acts 6, sorting it out. By the time we get here, looks pretty good. It's starting to make a lot of sense. The people who serve the church meet these requirements. Yet we still don't get our questions answered about deacons the way we want. And that's what's so hotly debated. We want them answered in a certain way. We want certain questions answered, and I'll tell you why that is. Because we're trying to import what we think a deacon should be 
or what we want it to be or what tradition says it is today or what it should be in our context back into what they're saying. And it doesn't fit. It's a wrong size peg going into the wrong size. It doesn't work because we're trying to import deacons today back into that rather than letting the Bible teach us what deacons should be rather than going down this trajectory and understanding it. Okay, so if we keep going forward, now we're getting closer to us. If we keep going in forward in time with the same thinking of I'm going to take what I want the deacon to be and jam it into the Bible so it fits like I want, we now get into all kinds of confusion. You ready? So here's what was happening for the most part in the early church, the early centuries of the church. They basically just had their elders do everything. Okay, and we still see that sometimes today, but partly that's okay. That's not a big deal in part because they didn't used to do all the stuff that we do today, right? By meaning everything, the town came together. They showed up at the town church. They all sat together on a Sunday. The elder, the pastors would preach. They'd prepare the Lord's Supper. They'd handle the baptisms in the middle of the week. They'd probably get the building ready. And that was it. That was the ministries of the church for the most part. And if they had a ministry outside of that, it was an orphanage and they'd put an orphan director or whatever. And that was a totally separate thing apart from the church. Right? And if they needed help, if the elders, a plurality, a group of people that were tasked with this needed help, they would have a small group of helpers, assistants, deacons who would meet those qualifications and help them in those main tasks. Okay? I mean, that's pretty simple. You need groundskeeping, maintenance, funerals, digging the the graves, because the cemeteries were all at the churches, by the way, back then, so you used to get buried at your church. Some people got buried in the the church, which is, whoa. Don't do that. When you remodel the stage, if if it takes us a long time to get to that point and I'm passed away, don't put me in the ground. (laughs) Don't do it. That's weird. But that's what they used to do. Right, So I highly suspect there were pastors and elders out there digging those graves, putting up the markers. They did everything. Okay, I mean, and So if they had some help, they, they said, okay, we need some help. This assistant, is usually what they would call them, would have to meet these criteria. Okay, it was a long time before certain ministries came along that we started creating a special role. For example... Music ministers or music directors, okay? The pastor or the pastor's assistant, the person who was responsible for this, typically led the congregational singing. Some churches still do that today, and you should be really grateful that we don't do that here because I would be leading us in some of the worst off-key singing you could imagine from right here. That would be not good. But it was the elder or elders who led them in the singing. But we want to do more. We want to bring some instrumentation in. We want to have more music, and so we want to get somebody who now is going to serve in the role of music minister. we got to go out and find that somebody. How are we going to find him? What's the criteria? And unfortunately, the first and most important leading criteria a long time ago, sometimes or more so today, is also can they play music? That's important, but we should probably start with God's criteria, but we didn't. And so we created a new set of criteria. We ultimately created a third office in the church that's not from God, a criteria where we didn't measure them against God's criteria for servants. Pretty commonly. I mean, let's be fair. We hired Robbie, and we hadn't done this study yet, and guess what we did? What I just told you. Yes, we kind of measured them against elder standards, but we didn't take it as seriously. We had a whole separate, we wanted to be like this and like that. That's not God's list. If we were to do it over again, we would go to the letters that Paul wrote. We'd pull out the criteria from 
from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we'd say, this is the criteria this guy's got to meet, and then let's find out if he can play music. Right? He's got to be faithful, godly. He's got he's to meet God's criteria first. Right? Just like the pastors. Okay? For a long time in the church, there was no children's ministry during the church worship. That's a relatively modern invention. It started in the late 19th century. It used to be that kids were catechized at a different time by the, in a different class, and guess who led it? The elders, the pastors. Or you go around to homes. Richard Baxter goes to home. Here's a catechism. Here's a question for the kids. And it was happening in the homes. We didn't have anything. All these old churches. What is all these old churches that have eventually closed and became museums? What's their kids' wing look like? They don't have them. You walk in a door. By the way, they don't even have double doors. If it's windy, man, everybody got blasted because the person opens the door. Wind comes. I mean, you guys have all seen the movies. That's what these churches look like. And if they're lucky, they had a basement, one big room. That's it. Go down to First Baptist Provo. It's one of those churches. Top and bottom. Upstairs, downstairs. So what, what's going on with kids' ministry and nursery? And That's a modern invention. Right? It, got, it started in the 19th century. It got really popular in the 20th century. We dump our kids off, and they don't come into the worship service with us. Oh, but now we need some people who work down there. And we do some of this. Like, Come on, there's a nursery going right now. By what criteria should we examine the people who are serving our children in the church? Should we just make up our own man-made criteria list, or should we go with God's list? That's what this word servant means, is that they line up with God's list. Deacon, this is the list. We don't want to create our own lists. Okay, now surely from time to time, even in the early church, in the first century, they needed help. That letter got from Corinth to Rome somehow. They needed help. So when they're saying, hey, who's going to take the letter? My hope is they're looking at the list. They're looking, I mean, like, hey, what, what should a person who serves God look like? Right, that's the idea. And then when we need help, we should do the same. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13, there's the list. Why? Because people serving in the church should meet the qualifications that God has given us. God has given us the standard by who is going to serve his people. I suspect when we ask who Phoebe is, that she looks something like what we see in the second list of criteria that Paul gave in 1 Timothy 3. I bet she looked like that. What does a deacon look like? Well, look at Phoebe. What does Phoebe look like? Well, look at the criteria for being a deacon. That's what I suspect. Now, we need to be really intellectually fair. Romans 16.1 says she was a deacon. Now, there's a lot of debate. Does that mean a servant? Does that mean a special office? Does that mean the guys that sit outside after the service and smoke cigarettes, but we elected them to serve a three-year term? A lot of discussion on what that may or may not mean. I don't think any of our deacons here, we don't even have those kind of deacons, are out smoking cigarettes after the service. Not the cigarettes are wrong. They kind of are. They're not really good for you. But the point I'm getting at is we need to look like God's list. We need to look like God's list. I'm sorry, honey. She's shaking her head. What have you done? Got off my notes. The translator's like, who is this guy? Okay, I realize it wasn't Paul's point to say all that. It really wasn't. Paul's intention was to say, Phoebe is a rock star servant. And you guys need to bring her into the church with you while she's there. Who knows? She might be coming back. She might be going somewhere else. She's awesome. And you need to welcome her as a sister in Christ. That was Paul's intent. But I think God's intent here for us today is to start to anchor ourselves into what this really is. So this is the point. Jesus loves his bride. That's the church. That's us if you're a believer. Jesus cares about who serves and who helps his bride. And he cares about you. And he cares about who serves you. 
because Jesus loves you. So he doesn't want just any person with no criteria serving you and his bride. That's why he set these qualifications for those who would be responsible and have responsibility in the church. So in part, that's how Jesus is building his church with these standards. Jesus entered humanity, right? He took on flesh. He lived a perfect life. He suffered and he was persecuted and he died to pay the price for our sins, right? Then he rose from the grave, defeating death, And then he ascended to sit at the right hand of God where he's sitting at the Father's side interceding for us right now. And he sent us the Holy Spirit to equip us and to teach us and to train us and empower us. And then he establishes the church as his witness for his glory. I don't think he would do all that for you and me just to leave his church willy-nilly to whatever the heck we want to do. I think God wants to set how God functions in his church and what we're to do in that. And too often we want to hold on to tradition. Or we want to hold on to our preferences. Or, well, this church down the street's doing that. Or, what about this? Or, I used to do that. We want to hold on to these worldly ideas. And I think what I saw going through this was, we have got to anchor ourselves in what God has in the Bible. So while Paul was hoping that the church in Rome would be great to Phoebe, I think God is using this text to move our church to really make sure we are anchoring ourselves in these standards for all who serve. Right? We need to surrender to Jesus' design that he outlined in his word. Right? And we should seek that those are, who are serving here at this church are meeting this criteria given by God. Right? We're going to have some conversations in the future about what maybe our constitution is going to look like and what, how we might title that or talk about it, but forget all that for a minute. If we're serving, if people are serving, let's make sure we're serving by God's standards. Whatever the title or whatever the, however we structure it, let's make sure we're serving by God's standards because we want to be a people who follow the word of God. And also we don't want our servants to be you know, drunkards and gossips and hypocrites. I mean, God has a pretty good plan here. I think we need to go with that. And also, we need to welcome and thank and care for and help the servants in this church. If it was important that the church do that for Phoebe, we have some pretty good servants here, don't we? We need to help them and thank them and come alongside them. That's what Paul was encouraging the church in Rome. I'm convinced that's what God is encouraging the church here at Redeeming Life to do, to be grateful for these servants. I know this was a pretty technical sermon. I realize that. I think it's the beginning of this conversation that we're going to start having here as we seek to anchor ourselves the best we can in God's word. So if nothing else, take this away. All of this and the effort we're talking about and why we want to get this right is because Jesus cares for who serves his bride because he cares about his people. If nothing else, take that away. He cares about us. So we want to get that right. I think that's what this text is charging us to do. Let's pray. Lord, I I thank you. Sometimes we can get excited about salvation and excited about mission and excited about the end times or how you created the earth. But now, Lord, we, we, we just want to anchor ourselves in what you have for our church, that we would do that right. That the servants of our church would be people who reflect Jesus well. That we would be just, we would be anchored to what you've set. And Lord, I don't think it's going to be hard because that's mostly what we see here anyway. But Lord, help us to be, to be faithful to that. And Lord, help us not to set up some third office or some third criteria that's not in the Bible. Even if that's what is being bombarded on us from outside, 
or from denominational folks or from other churches up and down the street or whatever, other books. Lord, we want to be anchored in what you've set for your bride because we know you love your bride more than we could ever love this bride. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring this much that you would set these standards for our good and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.